To finish up uh, Becoming Human uh, from Matthew 5, uh, we will be continuing into Matthew 6 next week, um, but we're going to call it The Secret Life of Jesus, so uh, that's continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, but a little, little bit of a shift uh, in that uh, section of Scripture. Um, so we've been hearing Jesus' teaching in this Matthew chapter 5, and I've been saying that this is basically a manual for becoming fully human, um, which what we're doing is we're hearing from the inventor of humans. Um, I have a, a, a friend who became a YouTube sensation when he was a college student uh, at the University of Massachusetts, and what he would do is whenever the, the latest iPhone would come out, and uh, he would wait in line all night and then get the iPhone and then take it to his dorm room. And then all day and all night, he would uh, play with the, the iPhone until he knew every feature and every little nook and cranny of that iPhone. And then he would do a YouTube video about the new iPhone. And he would get hundreds of thousands of, of hits and uh, became kind of, you know, YouTube famous. And it, it turned into this company that is now in Austin, Texas, of all places, and uh, it's pretty amazing. But what would be more amazing is if the inventor of the iPhone, which is not really one inventor, but just work with me here, if there was one inventor of the iPhone and they made a YouTube video about the iPhone, right? And so Jesus is the inventor of human beings. And he is speaking with great authority on what it means to become human. And so, so far, he's been telling us that fully human humans are righteous. That's his, his word. They are righteous. And that this righteousness that he's talking about takes more than mere religious practice. And he, we, we hear that in places like Matthew 5.20 where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were the most religious people in town. Uh, from outward appearances, they seemed to be uh, righteous. They were counting their steps on the Sabbath to make sure they didn't walk too far. They were straining out what they drank so that they would make sure they might not accidentally drink an unclean gnat. They counted their tiny little harvest from their herb garden to make sure that they were bringing 10%, a tithe, of their herb harvest to the synagogue offering. And by outward appearances, they seem to be righteous. And yet Jesus was like, no, that's, that's not righteous. There is an inward righteousness as well as an outward righteousness. Outward righteousness matters, and so does in inward righteousness. And we... Uh, as, as we've looked at these different topics that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, it feels more like divinity than humanity in some respect. The bar is really, really, really high. And he is relentless in raising the bar with each topic in Matthew chapter 5. He not only prohibits his followers from outwardly murdering people, but also instructs them to repent from angry and dismissive and dehumanizing inward attitudes. And not only that, telling them to embrace reconciliation with those who are actually persecuting them. 
He not only prohibits his followers from outwardly committing adultery, but also instructs them to repent from lustful, objectifying, and dehumanizing inward attitudes. Not only does he prohibit manipulating others with a sliding scale of oath-keeping and oath-breaking, but instead instructs his followers to let their yes be yes and their no be no. As we've worked through these different topics, on one hand, they feel crushing, but on the other hand, they're exciting, I think. They're like a calling to, to come upward into a humanity that Christ has created us for. And honestly, most, whether you're Christian or not, would agree that human beings should not angrily or lustfully dehumanize other people and that whenever they say they're going to do something, they should do it. Most people can get on board with that, right? But this section, this section, <laughs> this is a tough one, right? If we thought the bar was like El Capitan and Yosemite at 3,000 feet, the bar now looks like 30,000 feet Mount Everest. This moving toward those who are our enemies. And so in this text, and this is, if you, if you fall asleep or get lost in the sermon, here's the, here's the point, so you, you can write this down, uh, that embracing one's full humanity includes refusing retaliation, but not only that, affectionately and actively loving people, especially those who've hurt us. To reject retaliation, but not only that, to move toward people affectionately and actively, especially those who have hurt us. So let's look at those two points. The first point, refuse retaliation. He starts this section off similar to the other sections, right? You've heard it said. And then he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is actually a quotation from the Bible, and it shows up like three times. Here's one of those times, Leviticus 24. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done for him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, this is talking about civil law, right? And, and it's, this is a good concept, right? Because it's talking about fair retribution, just retribution in a civil law system. This actually put a limit on the culture of revenge in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was oftentimes blood feuds, right? You kill my brother, I kill your family. I kill your family, you kill my clan. And it would escalate and escalate and escalate. And so this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth concept really was limiting that kind of carnage. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but then he's going to say, but I say. And so this isn't to say that we shouldn't have fair retribution inside of a civil society, but Jesus is saying, my kingdom is something beyond a civil society. It is beyond a particular nation. It is beyond a particular culture. It is a worldwide gathering of people from every nation, every tribe, every culture. Right? 
and it is beyond a civil society. So, how is it that we ought to live in this transnational, transcultural, worldwide, multi-ethnic kind of a kingdom that Jesus is gathering? Well, here's what he says in, 30, in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he makes a, a short truth claim statement and then four illustrations, right? Um, the, 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 the statement is, do not resist the one who is evil. Now that's... That brings a whole lot of questions, right? Wait a minute. Don't resist one who is evil? Um, instead of really explaining it like explicitly, he explains it with four examples. And this is very uh, common in kind of a wisdom tradition, wisdom literature, is, is not to say, here's my 10-bullet point explanation, which is kind of what we're used to. We're more Western. This is a more Eastern way of teaching. And he just tells some stories. And those stories are containers for the truth that he is explaining. So the four illustrations are a slap on the cheek, a personal lawsuit, a Roman soldier commandeering you to carry his armor, and a beggar and a borrower. All right? These are the four things. So a slap on the cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is probably more a social shaming than it is I'm, I'm beating you to a bloody pulp kind of situation. This is, you know, I'm challenging you to a duel and slap on the cheek kind of, that, that kind of sense. And, and so there's, there's a social shaming that's, that's going on. And it seems like you have two options. You either fight or flight, right? And Jesus is saying, no, actually, there's a third option. And the third option is to move toward your attacker, and to move toward your attacker, not to fight, but with reconciliation and relationship. It is this third way that is part of the kingdom. Um, when we run away, we end relationship. When we escalate and we, and we, and we attack back, we end relationship. Jesus is describing a situation where we move toward offering relationship. We have a whole culture that seeks to end or escalate. We have a culture war, it's often described as. And our relationships in our culture, in our society, are in shambles because of it. When we end or we escalate, it destroys relationship. Thousands of churches in the U.S. disbanded or were greatly diminished during the COVID uh, season. And for the first time in American history, more churches are dying that are opening right now. It's never been like that before in American history. And it's more to it than just COVID. COVID ended up being a means of bringing out a lot of the disease that was in the church. And so there was so much infighting during that season of COVID over masks and race and Trump and fill in the blank. 
And many Christians either ended or escalated. And that ruined relationships. They didn't move toward with reconciliation and uh, relationship. So Christ is calling us to turn toward the offending person. That if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. Second one is a personal lawsuit. It says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So you're being sued, you don't really have money to pay the lawsuit, and so you literally have to take, give the clothes off your back, your tunic. And Jesus says, go ahead and give them the cloak as well. What's interesting is the cloak was actually protected by Jewish law from being sued off your back, right? Exodus 22, verse 26, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you literally have the right to keep your cloak. And Jesus is saying, give away that right. They sue you for your tunic, give them the cloak. It's a similar pattern, right? Someone is seeking to hurt you. In this example, it's not physical or some sort of social shaming. It's financial hurt. And he's saying, respond to that one who is offending you with reconciliation and relationship. I remember, this, is, this was not long ago, talking to uh, an, a husband who had abused his wife for 10 years, and his wife was finally like, I've had enough. I'm going to get a divorce. And the husband knew that we were friends with the wife, and so he called me up, and he was like, I really want to get back with my wife. And, uh, you know, pastors, they, they want people to get back with their wives, right? And like, uh, yes, in general. And uh, he's like, well, what do you think I should do to get her back? And I said, well, I think you should give her whatever she wants. If she wants the house, give her the house. If she wants full custody of the kids, give her full custody of the kids. Show her that you really are acting in good faith. I could tell he didn't like that. He didn't like that uh, counsel. It was kind of quiet. And then he got off the phone. He said, okay, I'll, I'll give that a try. So for two weeks, he tried to be really, really nice. And then she wouldn't take him back. And he got a lawyer. And he sued her for the house. And now he's trying to get the kids. Right? This is the spirit of our age. You know, fight for me. You know, fight for what is my right. And Jesus is saying, that is not the spirit of the kingdom. It's actually the opposite. You're laying down your rights. You're giving away, even toward those who have hurt you. Now, the next story probably is about a Roman soldier forcing you to carry his armor for one mile. Um, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Um, first century Jews were under a great amount of brutality from the Roman government. Um, and honestly, the feeling was mutual. The, the Romans hated the Jews, partly because they were monotheistic and they refused to worship Roman gods. Um, they also had food laws that kept them separate from uh, everyone else um, but, the, but the Jews. And so consequently, Roman soldiers were particularly harsh with the Jewish people of the first century. And so to make matters worse, Roman soldiers had the legal right to ask anyone in the Roman Empire to carry their armor one mile. 
but just one mile. Not over, not over one mile, one mile. And as you can imagine, for uh, a Jew to be asked to carry one uh, Roman soldier's uh, armor, it you know, added injury to injury. And so Jesus says that after his followers are forced to carry the armor one mile, they should carry it two. I mean, imagine this. Roman soldiers demands that this Christian carry the armor. The Christian does it without complaint, without delay. They get to the end of that mile, and the Roman soldier is like, okay, you're relieved for duty. And the Christian says, actually, it would be my honor to carry your armor one more mile. I'm sure that was an interesting conversation, that second mile. And so again, this is, this is the, the spirit of the kingdom, is this moving toward people who have hurt us. Um, think about it this way. So say you've got a coworker at work who has lied and manipulated in order to get a promotion. Uh, they've actually taken credit for work that you did in order to get the promotion, and you're walking by their, their desk and you see that they've got a big project and they could really use your help. And you walk over and say, hey, how can I help you? Moving toward those who have hurt you. Um, the last one is a beggar and a borrower. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This one's a little different, isn't it? This isn't an offender. This is just a person with a need. And one's asking just for a handout, and another's asking for a loan. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't refuse the one who presents a need. And I think he's doing this purposefully where he's kind of started with the greater generosity, and he's moved to the lesser generosity. This is more just garden variety generosity. Like people bring a need, you want to be willing to meet the need. That certainly, if we're going to be generous to the cheek striker or the bringer of the lawsuit or the Roman soldier, we're going to also be generous to those who bring a need. Um, some have used this verse to say, well, I must give to every homeless person that asks me for money, right? It says right here in this verse. Um, and so when meeting needs, we need to be wise. We need to be wise. So that need might be in that situation to give some money. And I think sometimes that's totally appropriate. It might be be friendly every day to that homeless person. It, it could be uh, to help that person find some housing and say, hey, I, I'll, I'll help kind of be the bridge to help you get the right services or things that you need. It could be a hundred different things, right? So he's not saying don't be wise, don't be wise about it. Yes, absolutely, be wise, because you want to meet the need, the real need. So the basic truth of these examples, I think, is we want to have a posture of being the generous giver and not the taker, especially toward people who have hurt us. And Jesus is going to say, in particular, those who persecuted us, Right? So these are folks that have persecuted the believer for being a Christian. And he's saying, move toward them with a posture of generosity. As we do that, we're, yes, absorbing evil. Now, I want you to notice that these are personal affronts. These are not something happening to another person that's evil. 
These are personal things that we can absorb the evil. I think when it's happening to someone else, it's appropriate for us to step in and protect them. But for us, we can make the decision to absorb and to move toward those that have hurt us with reconciliation and relationship. This is a good word for us. This is a good word for the American church. This kind of posture. This would be transforming for uh, the American church and for our church as well. As I said before, many in the church are so wound up about culture wars. And it doesn't mean that truth doesn't matter. Truth does matter. And we should speak truth. But we should do it with a posture that is moving toward the person with reconciliation and relationship. That is a powerful combination of courageously speaking truth and still moving toward people with reconciliation and relationship. This is what you see in the civil rights movement. We're not backing down and speaking truth about what, how, the, how the country should be run in regards to race, but they're, they're taking it on the chin, literally. They're moving toward people as they speak the truth. So what does this look like, moving toward others? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't just say, go do this thing. He actually helps us with some specifics. And verse 43, uh, he starts this new section that I think kind of drills down a little deeper in how we do this. So he says, again, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that sounds strange to us, to our modern ears. We, as a society, hold, at least in theory, that you should love everyone, right? We don't want to be xenophobic. We don't want to fear the other, the stranger, right? We don't want to other people. We want to love everyone, no matter what their race is or their class is. It, it doesn't matter. We want to move toward them. Um, and really, this originates, this kind of thinking originates with Jesus. <laughs> this is where the Western world got this idea, right? The ancient uh, cultures, the pagan cultures, they did not have this concept, right? Every ancient pagan culture was tribal. Their plot of land, their people, and their God is all that mattered, and everyone else was an enemy. And for the most part, the Jews felt the same way in the first century. This is our plot of land, this is our God, and you better not mess with us. Everyone else is an enemy, right? And, and, and Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, which would be your peeps, and hate your enemy. And everyone's like, uh-huh, yep, that's right, that's right. Um, now, while we, in theory, say, oh, no, no, we're not like that, we don't hate our enemy, um, it's honestly pretty normal now in our modern culture. We, we are very tribal. Ours is the age of outrage, right? And so we are demonizing our opponents, right? We are uh, using ad hominem arguments, meaning that we attack the person that we're arguing with instead of actually talking about the issue. The Republicans are right-wing extremists, and the Democrats are left-wing elitists. And on and on it goes as we 
uh, split up in our little tribes. We have a long list of others that we tend to hate. Um, Take your pick, right? It could be gay people. It could be evangelicals. It could be Aggies. I'm just kidding. Um, all my, no, my Aggies are here this morning. Dang. I, I put that joke in there for them. Um, it's interesting. If you, if you see people's faces, I've, 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 I observe this when they're talking about the other. And so when we were in Massachusetts, you know, it was mostly progressives, and they would talk about conservatives. And it was like, Arr! And now that I'm in Texas, I'm around a few more conservatives, and they're talking about the liberals, and you just see their face, like, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. At least that's what you've heard, right? But Jesus says, I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whew. That's the spirit of the kingdom. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So not only do you refuse to retaliate, but you actively and affectionately move toward those that have hurt you. These are those who are truly human and are part of the true humanity, are moving toward those who have hurt them. Um, What does he mean that we should love our enemies? Does he mean we should feel love toward our enemies? Yes. I think he does. I'll talk more about why I think that. But I do think he is saying not just actively but affectionately. Now, it definitely includes action, right? Here's kind of a different version of of Jesus' teaching on this. Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So it's very active. Doing good, praying, blessing those who have persecuted you, who have uh, abused you. Authentic love always includes action. Think about this. Your significant other declares their love for you on Valentine's Day. It feels amazing. They love me. But over time, you notice they're unavailable. You say, you want to go on a date? And they say, actually, I'm booked. Maybe next month we could go for a date. But they assure you that they really love you. Then they forget your birthday. They forget your name. No, kidding. Okay. But you get the picture. Genuine love must also include action. But it must also include affection. Think about this. They declare their love for you on Valentine's Day. They're very available. They answer your text with many, many heart emojis every time. Not just once, but every time. When you say you want to go on a date, they say, let's spend the entire day together. You ask them why they are being so good to you, and they say, what's the right thing to do? If I love you, it's my duty to be available. No, that's not love either. We want both action, but we also want affection. This is why I think this love that Jesus is talking about, love your enemy, is both action and affection. You say, well, I cannot do that. You're right. 
Definitely not apart from God. You can't do that. This is why we've been saying to be a fully human, you must be reconciled to God. <laughs> must have His supernatural grace working in and through us in order to fulfill these visions that Jesus is giving us. So Jesus is in part driving us into the arms of a loving Father whose love is both active and affectionate. Look at what, where Jesus goes with this passage, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Father, Heavenly Father is perfect. Now I want you to see this, because this is the finish line of this first chapter. As he been, he's been given these different examples, these different topics what it looks like to repent from being less than human and move toward being fully human. And this is where he lands, in the arms of the Heavenly Father. He's not just inviting us into some new holy list to try really hard to, to get to. He's inviting us into a new identity. And he's saying that new identity for both men and women is to be sons of the father. Now, he uses the son's language because in the ancient world, the son was the one getting the inheritance and not just getting money and possessions, but getting an identity. That family identity was given to them, gifted to them by virtue of just who they were. And this is what Jesus is describing for those who come into the kingdom of God. They are given, gifted a new Identity, the, if you remember the beginning of, of chapter 5, the beggarly, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the persecuted are welcomed into the family of heaven as sons and daughters of God. And that new identity is, is given to us and is the means by which we are motivated to live like our Father, be like our Father now that we're in His family. And we're given grace and power in order to be like our Father who has created us and now in Christ is recreating us to be fully human. Where he says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. It sounds similar to an Old Testament verse that pops up a couple of times, which is be holy as, my, as, as, as I am holy, God says in the Old Testament. Um, if, if Jesus was saying that, the Greek would be, uh, you should be hagios, holy, as my Father in heaven is hagios. But that's not the word. The word is telios. Be telios, as my Father in heaven is telios. And that means whole. It means that you're being perfected. That God is making you human. Fully human. To be telios as your Father in heaven is whole, right? And we've been looking at all, all, all of these um, critiques of the, the religious leaders. They were not whole. They had external religious righteousness, and internally they were not righteous. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm not inviting you into some fake religious rituals. I'm inviting you into wholeness. Come into my kingdom. Become sons and daughters of God. Jesus illustrates um, how we are to be loving towards our enemies by pointing to God and his love towards his enemies. Uh, He does that by talking about the weather, the sun and the rain that God gives. And um, he gives that sun and rain to the just and the unjust, to those who are worshiping him and those that are not. He's moving toward both those that are his and those that are his enemies. And he's doing that every day. He's doing it right now. Man, it's a beautiful day, guys. It, is a go- it was gorgeous yesterday. So gorgeous. I, w- I-, I could have called Cooper and said, hey, come pick me up because I didn't have my car after the conference. And I'm like, no, I'm going to walk home because it's so gorgeous. It's from God. And that gorgeous day was given to the middle schooler who is not doing their work and getting in a fight every day and the middle schooler that makes straight A's and does what their teacher says. They got to enjoy the beautiful, beautiful day. The people who worked really hard at their jobs last week and contributed to the company and those who cut corners and did things that were legal, they got to enjoy the beautiful weather. And those that went to church and sang worship songs to Jesus and those who cursed God all week and complained about everything in their lives, which are all a gift from God, whether they know it or not, they got to enjoy a beautiful day. And Jesus is like, hey, this is how we want to be. We want to move toward those who are good, those who are our enemies, just as God does with common grace. Um, And again, he's saying, especially those that have persecuted you, move toward them with that grace. Um, God has not just given common grace, though, to sinners, right? God's given saving grace to sinners. Uh, He's given them much more than a sunshiny day. He's given his one and only son to die on a cross to pay for those sins that are being committed against a holy and good God. The Apostle Paul describes it this way, Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. There are multiple words in the the Bible used to describe those who are not Christians. And those words include blind, lost, even dead. But one of them is enemy. An enemy of God. And so what did God do with his enemies? He moved toward them. And it cost. It cost. As he moved toward them with reconciliation and relationship, he was absorbing that sin into himself, literally, and dying on a cross for that sin so that he could be reconciled with 
his enemies. And so as we think on that, if, if, if you have never come to, to that moment of realizing that is your position before a holy God and that you need what Christ did on the cross to make you, take, bring you from an enemy to a son and daughter, I would encourage you to, to receive that gift by faith this morning. This is, this is how you become a member of the kingdom of heaven, this, this uh, new uh, people that he is gathering, right? This, this is how you get in, is admitting, I'm an enemy, and the only way I can get in is by the grace given to us on the cross. Now, if you receive that already by faith, I want you to savor it yet again. We need to savor this every week to be reminded. This is the state that we were in. We were enemies of God, and he moved toward us with reconciliation and relationship, and it cost him the son, the death of his, his son. Uh, he is continually moving toward us. I think for some of us as Christians, we think, yeah, well, yeah, he moved toward me when I became a Christian. But now, I've screwed up so many times, there's no way he's still moving toward me. No, he is. He is. Why? You're his child. You're his child. And so his posture towards you is relationship and reconciliation. He's moving towards you this morning. You're a son, a daughter of the Father. So be reminded of that. Not just that he moved towards you initially to bring you into relationship with him, but that he continually moves toward you as a loving father. And then, thirdly, we then get to not only proclaim this message of reconciliation, we get to demonstrate it. And usually we think about that like, oh yeah, cool, yeah, I get to do like some service projects and uh, some, some, you know, cool stuff that will demonstrate how awesome Jesus is and you know, I'll give them a, a, a free ride or, you know, some kind of donation or volunteer, and they'll go like, why do you do this? And I'm like, oh, because I'm a Christian, and that stuff's good. That stuff's good, but I don't think it's as powerful as moving toward people when they've hurt us. That's powerful. That demonstrates the gospel in a powerful, powerful way. It is not easy. It is not easy. Uh, it's not easy in, to do it in church, and it's not easy to do it outside of church. Both, both settings, it's hard. Okay, so I don't want to make light of this. I don't want to make that, oh, yeah, just go move toward people that hurt you. Um, this also requires some wisdom. Because sometimes you've done what you can do to move toward the person, and then they're just not interested in reconciliation. And at that point, you have to turn them over to Jesus. <laughs> All right? So it, you may be thinking of people that you're not reconciled with. And so I, I want you to be prayerfully like discerning. Okay, have I moved toward them with reconciliation and relationship? If you haven't, you should do that, whether it's in the church or it's outside the church. Move toward them. Right? If you haven't, grieve that. Grieve it. It hurts. It hurts when, you, when, when you, you experience that break in relationship, but then to experience moving toward them with love and they not respond, it, it hurts. And so grieve 
grieve that. And partly, and I, and I know my own life has been a pastor for a long time. There's been lots of attempts at reconciliation that weren't necessarily reciprocated. And each one of those is like a little wound. It's like, oh, that hurt. And, and needing to bring that before the Lord to, to, to bring healing and bring perspective and wisdom so that I can re-enter into relationship with people. Because you, you don't want to be the one who's turning against or turning away. You want to be the one who's turning toward. And it's, again, it's difficult, but it is the gospel. Like it, it is a beautiful demonstration of the truth of the gospel. We're reminded of that every time we come to this table, right? We're, we're reminded of the night Jesus is being betrayed. We're being reminded of the, the night when he is about to be denied by like, his top follower. And he knows that that's going to happen. He's already predicted it. And he, and, he, and he looks in the eyes of his disciples. He takes bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. This, this is the cost of reconciliation and relationship. And he's just moving toward them. Even though he knows he's, he's going to get it. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's starting a new covenant community of people who do reconciliation and relationship with each other and with those out in the world. And in order for that to happen... We will have to not just have saving grace, but ongoing, transforming grace that we're going to receive by faith over and over and over and over again in order to live this life that we've been given to live in the kingdom of God. We are climbing Mount Everest, but it's not free solo. There, there, there's safety ropes. We're in a harness of grace. And so you bet, we're scaling that 30,000 foot, but... We are held by grace. And the longer you climb this, the more you realize that. It's not like, I'm, I'm a better climber now. I know I don't even need a rope. No, it's like, could I have an extra rope? Because <laughs> I know myself, and I know my weakness, and I know where I go when I'm left to my own devices. And so this, this is a reminder. I need grace. I need grace. I need grace. I need grace to continue in the climb. So let's pray. God, we thank you that when we were your, your enemies, you moved toward us. And you did it at a high cost. And we were reminded of that every time we take this bread and take this cup. And that you did it with loving action, but also affection. And so, Lord, may, may we receive that this morning. That you not only actively love us, but you affectionately love us. And that you move toward us, not just initially in salvation, but you keep moving toward us now that we are your sons and your daughter. So God, help us. Help us to, to, to be reminded of that. Help us to believe it down to the core of our being. And then, God, in that strength to then do what we could never have done in our own power, Lord. 
God, bless this bread and this cup. May this be a sweet, just intimate union with you as we take it, that it would remind us of you moving toward us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.